Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gemwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kind. When looking at American culture, you can see how security-minded it is. Things like home security systems, car security systems, gun ownership for protection, locking your doors. It is a society that in many ways doesn't trust its own environment, which feels kind of weird given that we live here. Hmm. Now, at the same time, we have in many ways given up pretending that we have digital privacy and security. News reports of security breaches and stolen passwords, hacking, cybercrime, they all create the sense that, well, resistance is futile. That's deep. And to help us unpackage what that might mean, we have our guest who is looking to change that by making data privacy a human right. Ben Brooke went to Harvard. You might have heard of it. It's a school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with aspirations of studying film. Soon after arriving there, however, he turned his attention to books on the future of artificial intelligence, as well as started taking some classes in computer science. This combination led to him being the co-creator of a new company called Transcend. And it's a company that aims to make managing your data and privacy an easier and seamless experience. We talk about how cleaning up someone's data is kind of like throwing confetti into a ceiling fan where you toss it up in the air and it goes everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then how Transcend helps companies and consumers alike clean up that mess and figure out where it all went. Transcend also helps companies be who they wish they were by helping earn customers' trust in how they manage customer data. Customer data can be very lucrative, and sometimes companies, despite the best intentions, can be lured into using that data for purposes other than what the customers would want. In spite of our regulations like the Europe's GDPR and California's CCPA, Transcend aims to educate end users and give them increased control over their personal data through what they term an enjoyable customer experience. We cover a lot of ground around the philosophy of security and privacy, as well as technical aspects of what Transcend does. And I hope you enjoy the chat. I've seen so many people just buy microphones. Well, I, I was at Staples the other day, I mean, more than once, and they have like a whole podcasting section. I mean, there's like, they have a podcasting studio as part of Staples now where you can go buy all of your podcasting equipment from Staples. And I'm like, wow, we've re- it's, it's really over, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The podcasting, uh, moments, cool, the podcasting moments passed because now we're at Staples. And even Target <laughs> had like a live streaming section. Yeah, it's 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 going mainstream, but maybe that's a good thing. Well, I think you know part of the question about living our lives online, right? It's just like everything's becoming so routine, so mundane. All these things that were exceptional five years ago, two years ago, are now mm-hmm. just part of the fabric of whatever it is that that we do. And it must be weird for a person like you who lives in the, this space with your company to kind of see this transformation take hold yeah it's 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 pretty cool to watch just how quickly things are proliferating i i I think the pandemic has kind of 
put everybody onto like just a baseline of technology. Like everybody now has their sort of computer set up, their microphone, their webcam and everything. And it's, it's starting to normalize like meeting on Zoom and all, a lot of just parts of our lives are going online. Um, wow. So, it, I mean, it's, it's definitely interesting. I think it sort of raises the stakes for us a little bit as a privacy company. Um, to make sure that we're also uh, that the sort of curve of like privacy controls is correlated with the curve of adoption of technology. Um, so well, there's the, there's lo- there's plenty of work to do for sure. Well, if there's any consolation, I was I'm organizing an online conference right now, and I was moderating a session, and one of the one of the uh, presenters still didn't know how to share a screen. Oh no. So there are still those people out there. I said, after two years of a pandemic, you don't know how to, I mean, this is still a mystery. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a, you know, you talk about people adopting technology and, and I don't know the, the data on this, but I do wonder to what extent are there like, you know, t- looking at that adoption of technology or adoption of innovation curve, you know, are people really adopting it or are they just kind of suffering through it? Or to what extent is technology still like this black box for most people and just the world we live in, Mm -hmm. people know how to use it. You know what I mean? Everyone comes up against technology. I mean, clearly, especially that kind of like security and privacy with their, you know, in with their phones and all their information. But how many of those folks do you have a sense, like actually know or have a sense of like what's going on with it? I think, I think a lot of people are, uh, are at a minimum adopting the technology and getting good enough to use it because their life now depends on it, like their livelihoods, Um, whether they know the implications of using a certain technology, I think is another question. And I think there's certainly less literacy around um, understanding, uh, for example, the privacy implications of using a new application or, uh, you know, posting something online what that really represents. I think there's less literacy there, but I actually think uh, to most consumers credit, a lot of people are, have grown very skeptical in general of, of technology and particularly big tech. Um, and even if you may not be able to articulate every single like technology that's under the hood tracking you, right? Uh, I think, I think that sort of inherent skepticism has grown a lot. Uh, especially over the past five, 10 years. It was very weird, you know, with the vaccine stuff going on. And I was listening to the governor of West Virginia, who's a Republican governor, his last name is Justice. And he was making the point to folks of, um, you know, as you're concerned that your vaccine is tracking you through a microchip, which is not happening. Nevertheless, you're carrying a phone around in your pocket that is literally tracking your every move. And, you know, you know, and even things, that you're not even putting in and still tracking you, still has the ability to track you. And you're not concerned about that. And I, I wish I had a better answer for why that's the case of why people can blindly accept that their phone is potentially and often tracking their habits, yeah. their behaviors, their locations. But then with this a vaccine, create a, you know, this magical thinking around, it might be tracking me and it might know what I'm doing and I might not have any privacy. Yeah, I mean... There will always be conspiracies about things like this, but the I, 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 I'm less surprised that the conspiracy exists so much as that p- 
people aren't as cognizant about their phones tracking them. Um, and I think that's just been essentially like a slowly rising temperature over 25 years of one more sensor being added uh, yeah. into that, into that thing in your pocket. And uh, it's certainly gotten to a point where uh, at a minimum regulators have stepped in and said, okay, this is getting a little bit scary. And to a large extent, a lot of consumers have grown skeptical and wary of it. Um, and so much so that now we have modern privacy laws that completely regulate these things. So uh, if your phone uh, is you know, tracking your data and selling it to many other companies, in many regions now, you have the right to stop that. So if, if yeah. you're in California like me, um, you have the right to actually tell that business do not sell my personal information. If you're in Europe, that business actually has to ask for your permission before even tracking you. And um, companies like Apple, for example, who are essentially the platforms and, and essentially the enablers of other applications and technology companies to track you, being the hardware manufacturer, they are cognizant of like where the wind is blowing. And that's why we're starting to see all these things like app tracking, tra transparency. And so when you open your iPhone now, um, you get this pop-up where the same way it's like, can this app access your photos? It says, can this app track you? And you get, get to say, ask app not to track. Um, so I think the, the pendulum is starting to swing in the other direction now where um, regulators, consumers, and these, these platforms are all sort of waking up to this reality that we've been over tracking for a long time and we need to start actually layering in more controls for consumers so that they actually have that ability to say no more tracking for me. When, when you're at a party and someone asks you what you do for a living, does it prompt like some kind of response of, Oh, so, you know, do people ask you questions about, am I being tracked right now? Does the government have this? I mean, it might be quite the conversation when you tell people that your company deals in, you know, individual privacy and data and security and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I always have friends asking me things like, uh, what I find is the most common one is the behavioral advertising. So uh, it'll right. be like, I was just talking about dog food. And then the next morning I get this like <laughs> ad for dog food. That's the like, thing, right? Facebook listening. And uh, and the answer is actually, it's not even that Facebook's, it's not that Facebook's listening. What's crazy is that they don't need to listen. They can just see all of your other behavioral data, where you're going around the web, uh, you know, what sort of like interest profile you have, and they can predict that you need the dog food um, or whatever else it may be. It can be even more obscure than that. Um, so I, I, I get that question a lot. And, um, and yeah, uh, you know, as as someone who was essentially inspired by all of this to start a company that uh, helps make it actually possible for a business to give their users meaningful privacy choices, um, I'm I'm definitely approached a lot about those types of questions. Um, and and yeah, and, and for context, um, we are a data privacy infrastructure company where. Uh, about four years ago, we noticed that there's 
all these great new privacy laws that are going to give us all these rights to download our data, to delete it, to opt out of all these things. But we realized that this is actually essentially impossible for a company to actually uh, offer to, to a consumer um, because it's always been the case that most companies actually want to do the right thing. They want to give you choices and build trust with you. But the reality is, is when they're tracking this data, it's like throwing confetti into a ceiling fan right. and it's just data spewn all over uh, across their business. And so when you say delete my data, the prospect of doing that is actually like them going around and picking up confetti. That's a <laughs> great, that's a great metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but like, that's, that's the reality for companies is it's so like that request feels that unreasonable because it's like, this would take us like a hundred people like for 30 days to even just like sweep your data. Um, and so that's what, that's what inspired us to basically build um, a simple delete button that uh, dives way deep across all the systems in a business and can sweep uh, a given person's data out. I, th I think more in terms of my daughter's room, my uh, 12 year old daughter's room versus that. I mean, it's impossible. It would take forever to actually clean yeah. it up because there's yeah. so many pieces strewn about and it's all such a haphazard way that it's, you know, it's, it feels overwhelming. Right. And so like, why even yeah. bother? Because it's only going to get messy again. And using that metaphor is that this, you know, the people think about it in the same way as, well, it's, you know, it's just going to accumulate again. And mm -hmm. you know what, after all, it's really not affecting my quality of life. I can always close the door and pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, with my daughter's room, I can just close the door, pretend it doesn't exist, go about my day and not worry, not get anxious about it. Do people treat like the data the same way? Is it, I can just close the door, not think about it, pretend it doesn't exist. It's not a problem. Just go about my day because it doesn't seem to be impacting me in my daily life. I think some consumers think that way still. Um, Historically, that was certainly true. And I think there was a, a sense of defeatism on privacy about five, 10 years ago. Uh, but that has been totally reinvigorated and people now actually have serious trust concerns with businesses. Right. And they really do demand more of businesses. And, and, and there's really no, no bigger trust killer for a business than to violate their customers' privacy. And that's, that's like a, a relatively new reality. Um, and, you know, if you look at Facebook in 2011 versus to today in 2021, um, the reputational um, downswing has been, has been just unbelievable. Right. And the, the degree of like distrust that's happened and uh, is, it, it's all, I, I believe, impossible to come back from. Right. Um, like once that genie is out of the bottle, it's very hard to get back in. And so, um, so these, these businesses now understand that like they have to start building that trust with consumers and that by, you know, not trying to like just hide it away, uh, and actually trying to build that transparency with customers that they can actually become, uh, the best brand and the most respected brand. And so when you look at, companies who are considered leaders like Apple, they are staking their whole marketing position on privacy, like privacy, that's iPhone, uh, because they, they've woken up to this fact that consumers demand this and that if you don't do it, 
you can go down that same spiral with your reputation. It's, it's it, you know, really makes me think that, you know, I was looking at your company's materials and it's billed as a, you know, a security privacy company, but it's really a trust company. I mean, it's, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't recall thinking about it that way when I was looking at all the, uh, the blog material and all the other kinds of case studies, mm-hmm. but it really is right. I mean, you're really selling an, a way of establishing trust versus just selling a way of managing data. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's become a critical thing for the business itself and for the consumer. But the reason we actually founded transcend was because we ourselves as co-founders, my, my co-founder, Mike and I, um, actually set out on this personal project back in 2016 to study ourselves. And so we wanted to download all of our behavioral data from all the apps that we knew collected this information about us. And, um, and so we went to these apps and said, can we, can we have a copy of our behavioral data? And of course they're like, no, (laughs) but, uh, that for us just didn't sit right. Like it, it didn't make sense to us that consumers weren't entitled to a, a copy of what is essentially becoming their life story. Right. It's, it's a full transcription of the events, like down to the microsecond of what you're doing. And it seemed crazy that there was this like level of imbalance where a company can have complete visibility and uh, into your entire life and, and your entire history and as a consumer, I can't even read that. And right. so we actually set out to build these data rights. And fortunately, um, there was a draft bill in Europe for the GDPR. And we read that and then realized, okay, how, how, how can we actually ensure that these get, uh, that these come into effect? And so we set out to solve this infrastructure gap where, you know, back to that confetti analogy, we're now in the business of cleaning up the confetti (laughs) and we make it actually possible. And so uh, we believe that by doing so, we're cultivating this reality in which uh, users everywhere can have this, uh, have data privacy. And so it's important to us as founders. And so we certainly view ourselves as something more than just a, like a data management business. We we think we're certainly in the business of uh, helping build these relationships between consumers and businesses, but also just, fundamentally like making a new type of human right, something that is now exercisable. And you went to school, well, there's the school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. What was the name of that school again? You went to? <laughs> I went, I, my co-founder and I both studied at Harvard together. That's it. That's at Harvard, <laughs> right. And so was this a plan? I mean, you know, going, you know, you were studying software engineering and you talk about, you know, there was this moment in 2016, you decided like, this is a thing. But was this always a passion of yours? Not always an interest of yours? I mean, where did you, why software engineering to begin with? Yeah. Um, so I actually arrived at Harvard thinking I was going to study film. Um, okay. And um, I read a couple of books about just the future of, uh, the future of, I guess, artificial intelligence and uh, just the, the latest innovations. And I, I kind of just realized that everything that's going to happen over the next 10, 20 years is going to be in this industry. And so I took a computer science class and fell in love with, uh, fell in love with 
computer science and just technology in general. And I've, I was always kind of like, uh, you know, the resident IT person at my house, at my house and with my okay. friends. And so, uh, I, I was always kind of a tinkerer at heart and computer science was just like an, another way of doing that in software engineering. And so, um, I ended up going down that path and studying computer science. And that's how I met Mike, um, who was also studying computer science. Um, as well as doing his master's in computer science and statistics. Um, so we ended up just uh, working on a bunch of projects together. And uh, that's, uh, that's how we became inspired initially to get into Transcend yeah, or get into privacy. What was it about film that made you want to study film? I mean, as a, as a kind of, I mean, you know, mom, dad, I'm going to go to Harvard. Great. What are you going to study? Film. <laughs> and they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I was, I was really, really passionate about filmmaking all, all the way through high school. Um, and so it was like already sort of my thing. Uh, and I was like really active with it, like doing, shooting documentaries, shooting, uh, all kinds of stuff. I originally it was like my friends and I, uh, you know, riding BMX bikes and that's, that was like the sort of first film I made. Um, and then I got into children's animations and, oh, wow. um, actually a big part of my application was like a film portfolio. And so, uh, I don't really know, but that may have been one of the reasons <laughs> why, why they accepted me. But so I, I actually was pretty dead set on just going to film school in general. And Harvard was like one that I was like, that would be, that'd be cool. So I tried it and it ended up working. But, uh, but yeah, so then, uh, kind of over that summer before college, um, decided that I would check out computer science after reading some interesting books. Well, I mean, it doesn't seem like a very far leap actually, because, you know, the kind of film you're talking about is, you know, capturing story, you know, capturing people's stories, staging people's stories, telling people's stories. And what are people trying to do with the data? capture people's stories, telling people's yeah. stories and the creativity with, you know, computer science of creating code, writing code, you know, staging these kinds of, you know, experiences as your company is, you know, tr- you know positioning itself to do. It's not just we do this on the back end, but we actually, you know, c- create a meaningful experience. Films are created to be meaningful experiences. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. I never thought of it that way, but I, I, I like that. I, I, th- I think that's very true. I mean, we've, I've actually, it's been, it's funny because I've actually talked to quite a few people on this podcast recently who went to school to study film. Really? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're about the fourth. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and it, I mean, like recently, it's just like, and we did not plan it this way. Yeah. But, you know, when I asked people like, why did you get, how did you go from film to wherever you're at right now? It often is this kind of thing around, well, I was interested in telling stories. I was interested in creating experiences. I really liked the staging and the blocking and the setting up mm-hmm. and the directing and the organizing to create this larger thing. And they haven't been in software engineering, but it's, it's, a, it's kind of a similar, kind of a similar vibe. Of what you're describing that, you know, film totally. is you're trying to accomplish this thing. And then transcend, you're also trying to accomplish a similar thing, but with a different medium. Exactly. I, I think for me, I've always just loved the concept of building stuff. And for me, like shooting a film, writing it, editing it, like packaging it up. That was like 
for me, that's like getting my hands dirty and building something um, and being creative with it. And for so- software, it's the same. It's a lot of the same things, right? You're you're basically bringing something to life, and you get to get your hands dirty and make it make it real. Um, so just that sort of core element is something that for me was like a really translatable. Um, the other part is just that it's a super high leverage tool for getting something else done. So if you want to accomplish something in the world, like uh, you you can you can you can make a film and convince the world of some something that's important to you. Um, with software, it's another high leverage tool where uh, you can actually touch millions of people with uh, with something that you've built. And so for for us, like it, it, for me, it's sort of the same thing, right? I'm able to um, help build this reality in which people can exercise their rights very easily. Like that's that's so fulfilling to me. And so um, for me, I think I think both of them I view as like uh, just a tool that gives you a lot of leverage. <laughs> Yeah, and no, I can I can totally see that. I mean, I went to college trying to be a thinking about being a clinical psychologist because I wanted to help people. Yeah. And I took a sociology class and I saw it as an opportunity to help people on scale. Rather than helping one yeah. person, I could help, you know, a community or an organization or whatever it was, right? And yeah. it's a, it's a very similar kind of thing that you're expressing here, which is I can scale this up to a whole other level. I can and I guess one of the interesting things about transcend that's different is that, you know, some experiences that they're built well are seamless and I don't even know they're there. I might not even realize it mm-hmm. because it makes things easier. Whereas a film is there. I know I'm there. I know I'm experiencing it. It's the, the, the attempt to make an impression is obvious. Yeah. Whereas with sometimes with user experience that the, the attempt to make an impression is not to be obvious at all. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, for for us, that's that that actually is really important to us. Is that privacy is not seen as this like really hard process that you have to go through. Like, if you actually look at what the status quo is today for exercising your data rights, um, and this is without transcend, the the standard thing is you're actually going to have to like go through their support team, and if you want to delete your data, you have to basically email somebody and then go back and forth with them for days, if not weeks, uh, verifying a bunch of information about yourself, proving your identity to them. And it's like, it's like your classic, like support nightmare. Um, and that's not what the experience of privacy should be. It should be way more subtle. It should be a button, right? If I want to delete my data, I should click a button to do that. And that's really what we're after. Right. And so how do we build all of the infrastructure to make that even a possibility for companies and and thereby for consumers. Um, and so that's what we've been later focused on is like, how do we uh, wire up all of the data at the company to be able to uh, basically give this, get this delete button uh, actually working and then put that into the hands of a consumer. Um, and so it's, 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 it's a, it's as simple as the experience should be, right? Uh, but unfortunately, that's not really uh, that's not really yet where we're at because privacy is still so new, or modern privacy and data rights are still so new. What was the decision like? I mean, you know, you're at Harvard, you're studying smart things with smart people, and there's a lot of ways you can go, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the slideshow that you mentioned when we talked earlier um, from Google. Yeah. Um, I forgot the name of it again. It was 
Something like respecting users' attention. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know about you know this idea about attention, and you know we have a responsibility as developers and designers not to always try to keep people stuck in the moment of responding to technology. And I think one of the things in the slide deck, the point was made that never has so much power been held by, you know, mm -hmm. primarily white men aged like 25 to 35 who mm -hmm. are writing code from three companies Yeah, and the awesome responsibility. So, you know, what was it about you and your co-founder that you're like, you know what, this is a human right. I think it's a pretty powerful language. It's not just a convenience. It's not just, you know, a selling point for customers. Mm -hmm. But it's a human right that everyone should have. Like, what well, was it? Yeah. How did you get kind of pushed in that direction versus going in a direction of saying, you know what, forget that? Was we'll just make it as hard as possible and get the data and scrape it and analyze it and then try to, you know, influence people's buying decisions? Yeah. For us, the thing that really pushed us over over the edge was when we realized that the stakes are really rising on having our data being dispersed across so many companies with such a rich behavioral profile. And the, the specific thing that we, that pushed us over the edge was the realization that it actually affects the agency of an individual. Right. And nobody wants to admit that they can be, that their emotions or their beliefs can be changed by a tech company. But the reality is, is, they know everything about you. And if they want to slowly, subtly move your beliefs, they can do that because they, they control all the content that you get. And right. uh, they have basically full control over like all of your sensory inputs, if you will. And so that's a very powerful way of slowly moving people's behaviors. And the, the most obvious example of this was the Cambridge Analytica uh, and Facebook um scandal if you will yeah, <laughs> some people yeah. call it scandal uh at, but they were actually able to micro target individuals based on very very detailed profiles and just by placing the right content in front of them they could skew their beliefs to, into more polar directions um in this case it was moving toward right wing but um but it, it, it in in other regions, it goes left wing. So it's not really even a political thing, but it's just contributing so deeply to the polarization that's happening. And now there's misinformation campaigns coming out of, uh, you know, Russia and China and, and, and countries that, you know, in large part are interfering, um, right. with, with American society and, and vice versa. And so, uh, just the, just the, impact it has on agency was like really spooky for us. And we realized, okay, there has to be some level of control, at least like as a step one, like let's give consumers some control over this and the ability to, to basically push the off button on that. When I was talking with somebody and, you know, we're talking about this moment and this idea was, you know, weaponizing freedom of speech, right? This idea that, you know, the thing that, we hold very dear as a society, as a country, is the ability of a person to express their opinion without fear of government retribution. Now, obviously, historically, that's not always true, but that's the idea. And at the same time, weaponizing that with freedom, not of speech, but freedom of lying, right? Mm -hmm. 
you know, this, this notion that, well, we're just going to straight up send stuff out and lie. And then companies like Facebook, Mm -hmm. um, extending that because of, you know, either it's being profitable or even more recently news stories coming out that a deal was cut with the former president of the United States to lay off of Facebook in exchange for not um, censoring, not limiting those kinds of messages. Mm-hmm. You know, so it really is this kind of pivotal moment in, you know, human history of a sort. And it's not the information age, but it's the impact of the information age and the disinformation age that's really shaping human dynamics. It's yeah. that the belief was everyone's going to have access to information and everyone can make rational decisions, but people don't make decisions that way. Yeah. Right. They make it, they often make decisions emotionally. And so the disinformation age that has yeah. been, you know, put on steroids by technology is really the thing that, you know, we're talking about and what you're saying, if I got this, you know, if I can characterize it is this is a bulwark against that because by removing your data, you become anonymized and can't be targeted with this information specific to your behavioral patterns. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes it's not even just about deleting the data. Sometimes it's about opting out of certain things. So opting out of certain types of tracking, for example, and profiling, um, opting out of certain types of targeted advertising um, and of personalization. And those are ways of kind of breaking free from the echo chamber. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily mean that like, okay, we're giving you the button to like delete, you know, everything on your phone and like, you know, go off into the wilderness. It's just like, can you change your relationship with this company and what they actually do with your information? Um, so it's not always just like, you know, it's time to leave the platform. It, right. it, a lot of the time it's, it's, it's recognizing that the platform is a big part of your life and often, you know, essential to your social fabric in, in, an, in a time where we're all remote, uh, but also making sure that you can control uh, what that platform can do with your information. The cynical part of me, and I've been accused of being cynical, I guess, of being a sociologist, it's just part of the gig, is why would a company want that? Like, why would a company want to give people the right? Now, part of that is regulation, that they have yeah. to. Is that, is that the only thing that's pushing companies in this direction? Or are companies seeing that there's either an ethical, moral argument to be looked at? Or is it you know more brand loyalty, more brand ambassadorship? because people are making decisions based on who's protecting their privacy. So is it just regulation? Is there ethics? Is mm-hmm. it ROI, a combination of all of those or something else we have, I haven't mentioned? Yeah. Um, so certainly regulation is huge here. So there, we after 20 years, the national governments have realized, okay, this isn't something that's just going to solve itself. And so there needs to be regulation involved. With that, there's also actually this whole aspect of trust with consumers. And as I said earlier, there's no bigger trust killer than violating a customer's privacy. And it's very difficult to come back from something like that. And so businesses recognize that as well. And they know that they actually have to build trust on this very topic of privacy. Um, And so even if you take the most cynical perspective, there is an ROI on that, right? Like on, on not being... Uh, viewed as like a creepy or evil, right? Like overlord, <laughs> right? right <laughs> so right. you 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 want you want to make sure that you are building these uh, the, these options for your customers, and um, and what I've found at least personally is that 
if you speak to anybody inside most of these businesses, they all want to do the right thing, right? They know what the right thing is and they want to do it. But what we find is doing the right thing is often extremely difficult. Uh, and it's not because of bureaucracy or anything like that. It's just the reality that there's no infrastructure to actually provide users with these rights. And so th there, there is this infrastructure gap. And if you think about just the past 25 years, the technology is, is, has spent it building all of the infrastructure to efficiently collect mountains of data about users. And so if you imagine, you know, like a highway where the northbound is for collecting data about a user and the southbound side uh, is for the user getting that data back. Uh, the northbound side is like this 12 lane superhighway, whereas the southbound one is just one lane and it's probably not even paved. And so uh, what we're trying to do at Transcend is build all of that data infrastructure so that it, it actually makes it even a possibility to give users these rights. Um, and so, so ultimately, a lot of businesses do want to do the right thing. They know it's the best thing to do, not only ethically, but also uh, now from an ROI perspective. And then lastly, like the regulations are huge. Like these are not just a slap on the wrist kind of penalties. Under, under the GDPR, you can be fined 4% of your global revenue for violating your users' data rights. And so if you're, if you're making a billion in revenue as, as a large company, like that's $40 million and that can make or break your entire year or next five years, right? Um, so it's it, the, re the regulations are a huge driver for sure. Do you think, and I haven't looked at GDPR closely, but do you think that like, let's say GDPR never got passed in Europe. Do you think mm -hmm. it would have happened in the United States independently or was there something culturally about Europe around privacy and the person's relationship to the company that made it more likely to happen there first than happen in the United States first? It's definitely a thousand times more likely that it would come in, in Europe first. That wasn't a coincidence. Um, Europe, um, Europeans have a constitutional right to privacy, and that doesn't exist in the United States. Um, some constitutional lawyers in the United States may argue that there are things that are similar to a right to privacy, but there's no, you know, there's no sort of like, you know, and an amendment for privacy, right? And so, uh, but in Europe, that is the case. And so Europe has always historically had a set of stronger laws and GDPR is building upon them. And then European individuals uh, all have a very different cultural attitude toward privacy where uh, they truly do view this as a right, just like we view the right to the freedom of speech as a fundamental human right, they view the right to privacy as a fundamental human right. And so in the US, you know, we've all woken up to this fact that our privacy has been slowly getting uh, sort of dried up. And, uh, and now we're, we've woken up to it and we're now we're fighting to bring it back. And so the good news is there's now uh, privacy laws coming in uh, at the state level. And there are already, uh, there's already one passed and active in California. There's two that just passed in recent months in Virginia and Colorado, and about 40 other states have bills on right. the floor right now. And that has now prompted a federal law, a federal bill. Um, and uh, it is now a 
basically 100% certain, certain fact that there will be a privacy law at the federal level in the United States that uh, at a minimum is uh, as strong as California and uh, likely will in large part mock like big areas of the GDPR. It's, it's, it reminds me of actually with Texas and textbooks because Texas is such a large market for buying textbooks for K through 12, mm. but what their school board says in terms of what content is required drives textbook manufacturing companies because that's the market. It's like with California, mm. if California is going to set a standard, it's not like, you know, Massachusetts or Michigan or Wisconsin or Ohio or Nebraska could say, nah, we're not going to do right. that because you can't have 50 different standards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. In a country. So I guess California establishing this standard sets the minimum yeah. for what a federal standard needs to be because it can't do anything else but that. That's right. Yeah. I mean, California is about a tenth of the US population. And so a lot of companies are essentially complying with these laws anyway, because if one in ten of your customers have these rights, it's it's hard to ignore it. Right. So a, lot of, a lot of companies are already getting this like sort of partial compliance with these laws and saying, okay, well, one in 10 of our customers will have uh, data rights, but now, now it's sort of just an incremental step to bring that to 10 out of 10. One of the things I was looking at your website, which I really liked was, you know, there's a statement that we obsess over finding new ways to delight our customers and people listening might not, they might think like, what, how, how, what is that? Like a company that, you know, deals with privacy and security of data is delighting customers. And I guess that there's two questions. One is like, who's the customer? Is it the business? Mm -hmm. In what ways is it the business? In what ways is it the user? And also like, what does that, what does that mean in practical terms? Because a lot of companies yeah. say we want to delight our customer. Yeah. But in, in this kind of world, what does that mean for, for folks, both the businesses as well as the end user who might be using the technology? Yeah, so so to explain sort of how we interface with businesses and consumers first, um, with businesses we actually build all of the infrastructure such that if and when a customer says delete my data, show me a copy of my data, don't track me anymore, don't sell my data, uh, we actually are able to make that so inside the business. So we we'll, we will sweep through all of their data systems, all of their vendors and find your data and make sure that your request is fulfilled. So that may mean deleting your data everywhere. Um, so that's what we do for the business. But what we also do is give the business uh, a set of interfaces uh, through which consumers can exercise these choices. And so uh, the first version of this was our privacy center. And uh, these are basically a portal for a customer to go in and click the delete button, click the download button, click the opt out button. And it is on privacy.ourcustomerswebsite.com. And so that's where a customer can go to easily exercise their data rights. And it's very easy. It's consistent. The, the interface is familiar. And that alone completely rethought the status quo of what it meant to exercise your data rights. So if you go to uh, a majority of companies today, uh, if you want to download your data from them, the steps are as follows. Go to their website, find their privacy policy, read their privacy policy, find the section that says your legal rights, and 
find instructions on how to delete your data, nine times out of 10, it will say either mail us, email us, or phone us. Yeah. And, uh, and we're going to take it from there. And then you get into, the, into this you know, long support nightmare. Gotcha. And eventually, maybe they'll delete your data. But they're going to try and sort of like say no to that because they know what a nightmare it is on the back end for them to do it. So that, that was the first rethink is like, okay, we've solved the backend problem so well that companies are not comfortable giving this button to their user. And then we set our sights on consent. And so we're probably all familiar with cookie banners and right. the fact that they pop up on virtually every website you go to. And this is particularly true in uh, Europe, but even an American listener has seen it enough to be frustrated by it. But if you're in Europe, you know this is on every single web page you go to. And basically, we asked ourselves, how can we get rid of this, <laughs> right? And, uh, and the, everything is, uh, is sort of a game of incentives, right? Because we can't just, you know, we can't just say, like, let's just get rid of all, all analytics data and you know, try to convince companies to do that. That's not a reasonable thing, and companies won't do that. And so the question then becomes, how do we, uh, how do we help a company uh, basically get rid of the banner while allowing them to collect some analytics and still achieve their core business goal for you know, having cookies or what have you? Um, and so is there a balance that we can find where a business is able to actually adopt this and thereby we can actually... Find ourselves in a world in which cookie banners are not popping up in our face everywhere we go, um, and so we we actually put our heads down for about three years on this problem. And okay. this is kind of the story of Transcend in general. Is like we take very very deeply technical approaches to these seemingly impossible to solve problems, and what we came up with is actually. Uh, this concept of turning all tracking on a website into local tracking. And so if there is an event that says, uh, Gary clicked on the pricing page on our website, um, rather than send that information out to Google, to Facebook, to uh, the company that you're on, um, let's actually just keep it on Gary's browser. And then maybe later in the journey, if he's going to sign up, he can say, I allow, uh, I allow, you to like receive this data about how I got here. So like, here are my page views. Right. So you can consent at that more native embedded moment where you're at a sign up form and maybe there's just a checkbox that says, do you consent to allow um, the historic information of how you arrived at this landing page? And we can actually even show that data uh, because we have the opportunity to do that now that it's all locally stored on your device. And so rather than trying to track users from the outset and, and thereby pop this banner in front of them to get their permission right away. We say, let's just let's not track them until the very end, and then we can ask them to upload just this set of information later. Um, so that's that's the sort of second impact uh, we hope to uh, achieve. Um, much like we had with the privacy center, we want to sort of like rethink this other huge user experience problem in privacy. Um, so that's our second. And latest product. Well, it took it took like over three years to make Apocalypse Now, right? I mean, so you're like the Francis <laughs> right. Ford Coppola of uh, of privacy data. I mean, 
maybe a little bit easier to deal with on set than Coppola was. <laughs> I hope so. And making that, but it's, you know, three years seems like a long time and it might be, but you know, mm-hmm. like with like apocalypse now, it's like an epic yeah. because there's so many forces that were conspiring against them and making that film mm-hmm. right? And the way they wanted to make it. And there's a lot of forces conspiring against you to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish it the same way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is, it, it, it's always, it's always going to be an uphill ba- battle in privacy. There's, there's a whole mixture of, uh, incentives and, and, and positions and there's lots of lobbying power in both really? directions. And so we're always navigating, uh, navigating all these trade-offs and, a lot of the time, the solution is like, if only there was a better technology for this. And if only there were more infrastructure in place to do things like turn off the taps for, uh, for tracking, right? Like, you know, we have the pipes built, but we don't have any valves on them. And so right. like, we may have to build the valves and that's like, that, that's, that's something we often will do. Right. And so a lot of the stuff, uh, that stands in the way of us having truly exercisable privacy rights. Right. It's just simple infrastructure problems. There's no valves on the pipes. And so right. like someone's got to build those and and that's that's what we do. Well the the, the yeah the, and also the companies have to let you in to actually install the pipes. I mean it's it's yeah. part of the interesting that you know you transcend is also helping companies be who they wish they were. Yeah. Right. We yeah. wish we were these oh, guys, but we're stuck in this kind of industry and this you know artifice of profit and data analytics and we can't get out of it. And then you come along and you're like, Hey, I can help you be who you wish you were. <laughs> and yeah. uh, through this technology and actually, you know, not only give you data, but maybe even give you the right data. Because I know one thing that from talking with doctors, um, looking at how they manage data, they're like, I don't need all this data. I mm-hmm. need particular data. And, yeah. you know, the difference here is doctors aren't selling the data that, that, that they don't need to someone else. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, you know, maybe we can help companies find the right data that they need to improve product, to improve delivery, to improve services, whatever it is, and then not be tempted to take the other data they might not need and then sell it, <laughs> trade it, exchange it, make people basically derivatives on a information marketplace. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think we are already living in the world where that is no longer the ethical norm. And now it's about bringing it into, uh, bringing all of that into reality and actually implementing these newfound rights that we've, we're starting to, to receive as individuals, uh, now begins the whole process of actually making it making it real and actually exercisable. So like if you were directing a film on personal privacy and data rights and companies, like what would be like the closing scene that you would have planned out to bring everything to a fitting conclusion? (laughs) Well, there would probably be some looming uh, doomsday scenario. I imagine that is 20 years from now with some like, you know, some terrible misuse of all these consumers profiles and I imagine just in time, we'd get all of the data rights in place and, uh, and it would be a crisis averted. 
All right. This might be a good one too. try this on uh, building on that. Like what if you knew what was going to happen in the future and you're frantically trying to build a technological solution in time to avert that outcome? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I imagine there's like some physical kill switch on the day <laughs> right. that, that they reach just at the end. <laughs> there's a timer going off. I mean, it's a trope, but it works, right? It's a counting down <laughs> and, and there's, and there's been feverishly writing code <laughs> you know, with, with explosions happening around them, trying to get to that enter yeah. just in time. Yeah, I love it. I thought. Well, I mean, I think there's. I think maybe there's that'll a, be our next ad spot. I think. Well, there you go. You can. Uh, you know, I'm happy to provide that for you if you ever need any more <laughs> advertisements. Make sure to give me a call. Full of <laughs> ideas, but I think it's you know it's interesting to think about that the doomsday scenarios that we don't see. It's like that that saying about you know fascism happens slowly than all at once, you know, mm-hmm. these little nudges happen slowly than all at once behaviors change. Yeah. And you don't even notice it until it happens. And people have been reporting that they've been reporting that loved ones, family members, friends, coworkers, all of a sudden changed. Mm-hmm. They became different people, you know, spouting conspiracy theories or attitudes that were not locked into any kind of reality, but this alternate reality that they read online or were fed online. Yeah. Right. And it happens slowly than all at once. Yeah. It's very true. Um, and just playing it out over the next 15, 20 years, like, I think, I think there is something to avert here where, uh, right now, I mean, we have relatively benevolent dictators right. <laughs> collecting all this data. And, you know, if that, if that got into the wrong hands and there was like true malice involved, like that's a powerful tool. And uh, I think it's something that we as a society are starting to wake up to. And, uh, and I think, you know, I think we're going to avert it by getting the right uh, controls in place for customers and for consumers and actually giving people uh, true control over what's being collected about them and how their behavior can be manipulated. I'm looking forward to seeing how the movie ends. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. We want to thank Ben Brook for discussing his work with Transcend on how to make data privacy really an enjoyable and valuable customer experience. You can find Ben's information as well as all the information on Transcend in our show notes. As well, we'd love to know your thoughts on data and privacy. Are you an advocate for free and open information or do you have concerns that companies might not have your best interest in mind? So shoot us a message over at feedback at experience by design or hop into the conversation on our LinkedIn page, also linked in our show notes. We also want to thank all of you for continuing to support the podcast. We really appreciate your contributions and listening and how you share your ideas, how you contact us with potential guests, and also how you give us financial support to make the podcast possible. Again, you can always show your support for our podcast through Buy Me A Coffee, which can be found on our website, experiencexdesign.com. And as always, we all, we like to hear your feedback on what you liked about the show, what you'd like to see more of, and your overall impression of Experience by Design. You can share that feedback at experience, I'm sorry, at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And finally, as always, if you want to subscribe to get all the updates when our shows go live, you can go 
over to experiencexdesign.com, enter in your email, and stay up to date on all the exciting and late-breaking Experience by Design news. And we promise your data will be private and secure. And with that, hope everyone is healthy, well, and we will see you next time on Experience by Design.